You may be seated. Good morning, beloved. So Matt, if things don't go uh, so well for you here at Seven Oaks, you can always collaborate with Brian Dirksen. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little side hustle. That was very good. That was very good. So last week, uh, I, I just have to say first, it is so good to be here at Seven Oaks. Um, We've been, I've been telling people all week, including the district superintendent who I met with this week, do you know all the good things that are going on at Seven Oaks? He said, yeah, I do. And I know that your church has led incredibly well, and that has a lot to do with it. But uh, it's, there's just such a sweet spirit of anticipation and worship in this room, and it really brings back good memories. Also, you know, being Mother's Day. My mother died when I was 13. My mom was only 36. We sang It Is Well With My Soul at her, at her funeral. And my dad remarried a year later to uh, my new mother, my brother and, and my new mother, uh, whose name then was Lois Hunter. She was an Alliance missionary in Zaire, Africa. And uh, they were married at Christmas, and um, she attends this church and has for a number of years. Her name, of course, now is Lois Bueller. And uh, when you're sort of an, an aging son of an aging stepmother, you really want your parents to go to a church that they love. And my mom just adores this church. So thank you for loving Lois. Lois, do, do people know who you are? You should just stand up. Can you, can you stand up? Can somebody, yeah, there she is, yeah. That's my Mother's Day gift to you, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Okay, last week, uh, we were in Jonah chapter 1, and it says that the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and he was inside the fish for three days and three nights. In chapter 2, which is where we're going this week, today, it says that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God inside the belly of of the fish. And he said, in my distress, I called out to the Lord and he answered me. From the depth of the grave, I called out to you and you heard my cry. You hurled me into the great deep and the waters swirled about me. All your currents swirled around my head. Your waves and breakers, they crashed over me. I said, I am banished from your sight, yet I will again look upon your holy temple. But the engulfing waters surrounded me. The great deep terrified me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the depths of the mountains, I sank down, and the underworld barred me in forever. But you picked up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. <laughs> when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. You know, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. But me, with a song of thanksgiving, 
I will make my sacrifice to you once again. And the vows that I have made, I will make good. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry ground. It's no wonder, no wonder kids like this story. <laughs> Potty talk is allowed. What's staggering about the story of Jonah is not that he survived in the belly of a fish for 72 hours. What's astonishing is that from the belly of the fish, he prayed a prayer like this. Don't you think? Debates, rage in the academic world about the historicity of Jonah. We all know that. Skeptics say, you can't expect me to believe that it's scientifically possible for a man to live inside a fish for three days and three nights and then get puked out and walk to a city and preach to it? Really? Come on. And I do have to be honest to some of the skeptical evangelical commentators. The book of Jonah is a very strange book. And as a prophecy, it's very different than all the other prophecies in the Old Testament. All the other prophecies are basically about the oracles the prophets say. It's not really about the prophet. Not so with Jonah. What does Jonah say? In 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's all he says. The book is really about the biography of Jonah. The book also reads like a satire. It reads like a four-act play that we're intended to chuckle through the entire thing. But all the genre stuff that we have to pay attention to, though the genre is very different than all the other prophets, really, for those of us who believe in the God of the Bible, we have no problem believing that God could keep a man alive in a fish for three days and three nights. And the reason we have no problem believing that is because the God of the entire story, of which Jonah is just a sliver, the God of the whole story is about a God who created the entire universe, the millions of galaxies, out of nothing. <laughs> we say ex nihilo, from nothing. He just spoke the word. That's called... A miracle. The story of the Bible is supernatural. And that God who created the entire universe at a climax point in history became a human being like us. He became a man. He was born of a virgin, something that had never happened before. And through his life, he ushered in a new kingdom. Through his crucifixion, he atoned for the sins of the entire world. And through his Easter Sunday resurrection, he destroyed death forever. That's the storyline. And that is why we have no problem believing that God could keep a man alive in the belly of a fish for three days. Small potatoes, right? Last Sunday, we left off with all the sailors discovering that Jonah was responsible for the storm. <laughs> and they said to him, what should we do to you so that the storm will stop? And he said, throw me overboard right now. Let's do this. It's my fault. You see, I worship the God who made the sea and who made the storm. 
and he's not very happy with me right now. So let's get this thing over with. Where's the gangplank? Come on, let's do this. And for all the negative things we could say about Jonah, and there are quite a few, you have to admit that his honesty and his uh, impeccable self-awareness really shines in chapter 1. In this collective moment of sheer panic, when the boat is breaking apart and everybody's about to lose their life, uh, Jonah doesn't pass the buck or blame shift responsibility or complain about how difficult it's been for me to be a prophet all these years. No, he does that in chapter 4. <laughs> he doesn't do that in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he says to the sailors, I have caused your trouble. No gaslighting with Jonah. Mm -mm. Not in chapter 1. Kill me and you guys will live. And so the sailors go, oh dear God of Jonah, please, if we throw this man overboard and he is innocent, please do not take our lives. Please have mercy upon me. And then they grab Jonah. One, two, three, and overboard he went. And as soon as Jonah is in the water, three things immediately happen. The storm immediately calms down, miraculously. The sailors all convert to Judaism instantaneously. It said they made sacrifices to the Lord and they made vows to the God of Jonah. They became Christians. And salvation came to the renegade prophet, Jonah albeit in the shape of a very large fish. To quote Eugene Peterson, Jonah's vacation was ruined, but his vocation was spared. And it's here in the belly of a great fish that Jonah prays. Up until now, Jonah had not prayed. Everybody else had prayed. The sailors had prayed. The captain of the, of the boat had prayed. And now it's Jonah's turn. And we just... We just read the prayer together. So how do we know when somebody's prayer is legit? Is it the words? Is it the theology? How do we know when somebody is really getting through to God and God is getting through to them? I'd like to suggest that it's not so much in the words that are spoken, but it's the direction of the prayer's face. Which direction is the one who is praying facing? It says in verse 4, from the belly of the whale, Jonah says, Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. I've been looking away, but I will look again. And we need to understand just how central the temple in Jerusalem was to Hebrew faith and to Hebrew prayer and Hebrew spiritual formation. To turn away from the temple was to turn away from God. To turn away from Jerusalem, to look away from the place of divine manifestation was to look away from God. And that's what Jonah had been doing. Now Jonah still disagrees with God about the whole Nineveh thing, but he's facing God. Jonah's questioning God's dealing with Nineveh, but he's facing him. Jonah is furious with God, but he's facing him again, and God can handle it. So my day job is that I'm a spiritual director. 
Now, in the evangelical world, that language is strange to us. It's very familiar to our Roman Catholic siblings and our Anglican brothers and sisters, but not to us. A spiritual director is someone who sits with people for an hour and, with the help of the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures, helps them discern the movement of God in their life. Or, or in shorthand, spiritual directors help people with the struggle of prayer. Spiritual directors make space for people, and they listen a lot, and then together we go, Lord Jesus, what are you saying to your child right now? And one of the best questions that I can ask one of my directees is this, in the midst of their trouble, which direction is your face turned right now? Are you facing God or are you turning away, turning inward, turning to something else? And all of them understand that language, though it's quite abstract and it's a metaphor. Many believers right now, like Jonah, are either on a ship that's breaking apart because of a perfect storm or they feel trapped inside the belly of a fish. It's dark and there's fear and a sense of isolation and shame, and loneliness, and confinement, and impoverishment. And most Christians, like Jonah, whose faces have temporarily been turned away from God, understand that the dark night of the soul that they are in has been allowed by God. That God has allowed it, and perhaps even orchestrated it, and most of them also know that as painful as it is, It's motivated by his love. And there's something very powerful about this part of the story. I don't know if you noticed last week, but the word down appeared many times. Uh, Jonah is on this downward spiritual trajectory away from God. It says he went down to Joppa. And then he went down into the belly of the ship. And then he went down into a deep sleep. And when the sailors found out Jonah was the problem and they tossed him overboard, Jonah said, I sank down to the bottom of the ocean. It's down, down, down. And the writer of the book of Jonah, whether it's Jonah or somebody else, is doing this for a reason. And here's the incredible thing about it. As Jonah is going down away from God, God is going down with him. As David prayed for, where can I flee from your presence, Lord? Even if I make my bed on the farthest side of the sea, even there your hand will find me and you will hold me tight by your powerful right hand. We recently attended a play on the life of Jonah, which was very apropos because I knew I'd be preaching here two weeks on Jonah. I thought, this is good timing. The play was called The Boy Who Preferred to Be Angry, and it was put on by the East Side Actors Guild, a group of children in East Vancouver, and one of our granddaughters, Ellie, played the role of the young Jonah. I wept through much of the performance, as did everybody who saw the play. And my tears first began to flow during the scene where Jonah, rebellious, turning away from the Lord, was now inside of the whale. It's before he prayed anything. 
And he's lying there in the belly of the fish, shivering, and to everybody's shock, all of a sudden, another person appears inside the belly of the whale. And it's God. And we start to cry. Because God takes off his outer garment, lays it down over the shivering prophet, and he rubs his back as the scene ends. God never says a word. Actually, God doesn't say anything in the entire play. But everybody knows what God is saying. He's saying, I'm here, Jonah. I'm even here. In this horrible, smelly, dark place, I am here with you. You can't escape my love. You can turn to me now. You can face me again. Leave that there for a moment. We'll come back to Jonah. But meanwhile, not only has Jonah been descending away from God, but the great city of Nineveh has also been going down, descending morally into greater violence, debauchery, and everything evil. God said to Jonah in chapter 3, you know, the Ninevites don't even know their right hand from their left. They don't know the difference between good and evil. They're calling good evil and evil good. It sounds a little bit like a culture that we're familiar with. And so, the wickedness had come up before the Lord, and here's another big surprise in the story. I mean, in the book of Jonah, there's a surprise at every turn. God not only is going down after Jonah, but God is going down into the depravity of Nineveh, one of the wickedest cities in history. And you go, how? How did God go into the city? Where do we see God at work in Nineveh? Answer, God went to Nineveh through Jonah. God sent his divine representative. He sent his guy, his prophet. He said, Jonah, I want you to walk into the streets of the most wicked city and announce this message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You've got 40 days. You've got 40 days to stop the evil you are doing. You've got 40 days to turn towards the true God. You have 40 days to forsake your idols. You have 40 days to stop all the nonsense that you are doing. Repent. You've got 40 days. That's what I want you to do, Jonah. It was an incredible message of both judgment and grace. (laughs) You can change. This thing can turn around. Now, uh, how impressed was Jonah in cooperating with God in this partnership of evangelism? Well, he wasn't impressed at all, and that becomes the subplot for the whole story. Jonah does not want to partner with God. He hates the Ninevites. That was last week's sermon, and we're going to see it even more in chapter 3 and 4. But one thing is very clear. God, who could send in the tanks and the B-52 bombers to wipe Nineveh off the map, doesn't. He sends in a man. Some of you kids go to high school. Some of you go to MEI. Some of you go to Yale, to Abbey, and to Moet. You go to secular schools. And it's really hard 
but I want you to know that God loves every single kid in your high school who is descending down as far as she can go, as far as he can go. God is descending after them through you. You are the prophet in your high school. A very imperfect one, but that's okay. None of us are perfect. We think about the evil right now in Abbotsford, the gang warfare, the increase in violence. I think about the great city of Vancouver, the evil that abounds in that city. And if one thing is clear from the book of Jonah, God loves every single person in every single place in the world, regardless of how far and deep they have fallen. And God descends through us. through his prophetic community. But I have to say this. I need to qualify that statement. There does come a time in God's relationship with people where after his repeated efforts to rescue us in our persistent, incalcitrant resistance to him, he says, okay, you can go. And Paul says in Romans 1 that God will turn us over to a depraved mind. And it appears that the door of God's mercy shuts. But it has not shut here in this story yet, thankfully. There is yet gospel hope for the Ninevites. And the question, of course, has to do with whether God fires Jonah and hires another prophet. Or whether... The whole book is actually more about Jonah than it is the Ninevites. And so it says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, which means he turned his face towards the Lord again. In his heart, he turned again towards God's holy temple. Now, we're doing our best to to contextualize this story into Abbotsford culture, where we live today. And I want to contextualize the story to this current cultural moment because, to be honest, I'm not that interested about uh, Old Testament prophets who lived thousands of years ago and decided to run away from God and go to a place called Tarshish. I go, well, it's an interesting story, but really, I live 3,000 years from there. But I tell you what I am interested in. I'm interested in how the story of Jonah is being played out right now, right here. I'm concerned about the spiritual state of many of my friends and colleagues and family members who, like Jonah, at one time were living out their baptismal vows, but now they have deconstructed in their faith, not because they no longer believe in God, but because, like Jonah, God has allowed something to happen in their life that they don't like. And in anger, they've turned their face away from the God who originally called them. Most deconstruction that's happening now among teens and young adults is not because the teens doubt the deity of Jesus or the virgin birth or the validity of Scripture. It's because there is a deep wound that desperately needs to be healed, and instead of turning their face towards the great healer, they've turned their faces away. And then when that happens... It becomes very easy to slide into all kinds of heresy theologically. And so, 
poor Jonah is angry with God. He's angry with God's mysterious ways. He's angry with God's sovereign choices. He's angry and hurt possibly by God's people, by the temple crowd. And so Jonah's prayer gives me both hope for all my prodigal friends and it also gives me hope for my own rebellious heart. Because prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Every single day of our spiritual journey as Christians, we are faced with a decision to turn our face back towards the Lord. And Jonah's prayer tells us how to do that. So here we go, fast, number one. Facing God means taking a listening posture to God's word once again. When we turn our faces towards God, it's not what we see that's important. It's what we hear. In fact, you can't see God. So the very Bible that says, turn your face towards the Lord, I go, I'm doing my best, but I'm not exactly sure where to look. But I say to you, come on, let's all look to the Lord right now. We're going, you know, where is he? Is he up there? Is he here? Is he in here? (laughs) Yes to all of the above. But how am I supposed to look into his face? David prayed. He said, Lord, keep me as the apple of your eye. Now, the apple of your eye means that when I'm looking at you, I can see my own reflection in your pupils. So if I'm the apple of your eye, it means I'm looking into your face and you're looking into mine. David knew how easy it was to turn his face away from the Lord. So how in the world are we supposed to look at God, gaze into his face, when, like the great hymn, God is immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes? It sounds very abstract. Turn your face towards the Lord, okay? How do I do that? And the scripture suggests over and over again that the way we turn our face towards the Lord is not by seeing God as he is in his, in his glory because we can't see God. No man can see God and live. But we turn our face towards the Lord by opening our ears to his voice. Remember Jesus said, my sheep know my image. And No, 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 no. My sheep hear my voice. And follow me. And so this is what Jonah is doing. He's turning his face towards the Lord, but he's gazing at God by recounting the scripture that he learned as a child, the scripture that his mother, the wife of Amittai, taught him. Uh, look, at, uh, look at the psalm quickly. When, it, when he talks about my distress, that is a direct quote from Psalm 18 when he talks about being stuck in Sheol, in the place of the dead, in the, in the bottom of the earth, that's Psalm 18 as well. When he says, all your waves and billows have passed over me, that's a direct quote from Psalm 42, verse 9. Where can I flee from your presence? That's Psalm 139, verse 7. When he talks about looking upon your holy temple, that's a direct quote from Psalm 5, verse 7. When he talks about the waters closing in over me, that's a direct quote from Psalm 69, verse 1. When he prays that God would rescue his life from the pit, that's Psalm 30, verse 3. When he says, my soul fainted within me, that's Psalm 142, verse 3. When he says at the end, deliverance belongs to the Lord, that's in countless Psalms. Do you see what Jonah is doing? 
He is drawing his prayer from the scripture he has memorized as a child. Says Eugene Peterson, not a word in the prayer is original. Jonah got every word lock, stock, and barrel out of his Psalms book. And this is how we continue to turn our face towards the Lord when doubting and hurting and angry. We pray the scriptures by faith. So there are some days I get up and uh, I'm doing what you're doing. I'm meeting with the Lord and when the weather's nice, I go for a walk. And if I'm feeling a certain need, I say, oh, to you, O Lord, I lift up my voice. I call out to you and you will answer me. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from all their foes. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. When I'm afraid, I pray, Psalm 91, and I'm sure you do. He who stands in the shelter of the Most High abides in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, my rock, my fortress, my God, I will not be greatly shaken. Somebody asked me just last week, Hey, Brian, are you waking up in the middle of the night like at 2 or 3 in the morning and you feel anxious? I say, oh yeah, all the time. He says, what do you do? I say, well, usually I'm really concerned about one of my kids. So I start praying like this. The Lord is Annie's shepherd. She shall not want. He leads her beside the still waters. He makes her lie down in green pastures. He restores her soul. He leads her in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. How many of you, when you wake up at three in the morning, sometimes quote Psalm 23? Yeah, yeah. This is how we do it. This is how we turn our face towards the Lord. It's like, Lord, I'm listening to your voice once again. Number two. Facing God means being emotionally honest with God. In Jonah's prayer, he does what us guys particularly struggle to do, which is know our own feelings, give names to them, express them to God, and then invite God into them. (laughs) I'm not very good at that. Had to learn how to do that. Our natural response as good Christians, is to try to avoid the pain by fixing it or engaging in some activity which stops the bleeding quickly, or we indulge in some behavior, good or bad, that temporarily relieves our pain and numbs it. Because we now all have cell phones, we actually don't ever have to feel anything. If you feel tired or bored or angry or depressed, you just pull out your phone and you can do whatever you want. So are the phones a healthy tool for our spiritual formation, not if they keep us from feeling deeply and expressing our emotions to God. In his brief prayer, Jonah does what God commands us all to do in Psalm 25, where David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. To you, O Lord, I take my hand and I thrust it into the center of my chest where all my awful emotions are, and I pull it out of my chest and I hold it before you and I say, Here, Lord, this is how I feel, and I cannot change any of those feelings. Listen, when you pray like that, you are facing God. And then you say, Can you, can you enter into these emotions? Can you come and be with me here in my sadness? In my pain, 
And this is what Jonah is doing. Look at his honesty from the belly of the fish. He says, I'm in distress, verse 2. I'm in the depths. I'm depressed, verse 2. I feel banished, verse 4. I feel threatened, verse 5. I feel surrounded, verse 5. I'm sinking and ebbing away. I feel like I'm being barred in forever. This feels hopeless, Lord. So it's one thing to have a thousand Bible verses memorized. And when we're going through a hard time, we go... Verse number one, verse number two, check, 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 check. There, that feels a lot better. No, no, you can know a thousand verses by memory, but if in your prayer life you're skimming emotionally and you are not expressing your true feelings to God, you're not praying and you're not facing God. Prayer is a real conversation from the real you to a real God. How real Is our prayer life, how real are the emotions that we express to him and hold out to him? When I was, oh, I was probably 40, I'd been a pastor for, I don't know, almost 20 years by that time. I started very young, and uh, I was, when I left here as youth pastor, I went to North Shore Alliance, and uh, we walked through the whole women in ministry thing. And my agenda was to help the church transition to having only men on the board to men and women together. But that was a very uh, controversial issue back then, and it still is today. And and I honestly, I'm not even sure where you stand, and maybe I should not have even brought up this. uh, (laughs) Oh, shoot. (laughs) I'm so sorry, Jamie, if this is... Do you have women on your board? Oh, great. (laughs) Why didn't you tell me? Okay. So anyway, I've got a quarter of the the congregation really upset with me, their pastor, because they think I'm going progressive theologically. And I can tell you, I'm not. I am not progressive. I am not liberal. But they think I am because I've made a shift. And... I sat with my spiritual director for the very first time, and he said, so Brian, uh, you, you, know, you seem to be under a little bit of uh, weight these days. And I said, oh, I am. And he said, huh, how do you feel? And it just came gushing out all over my spiritual director. And he said, good, you're doing well. Then he said, have you told the Lord that exact same thing? And I said, no, not exactly. I'm a 40-year-old evangelical pastor of a church of over 1,000, and I had not learned to tell God the truth. And then he said to me, his name is Dan Hevner, he said, why have you not told God exactly what you've just told me? And that turned a corner in my spiritual journey where I realized I had to learn a brand new tool about being emotionally present with myself and emotionally honest with God. Quickly, number three, facing God also means that we recount the gospel. Oh yeah, it's very important to tell God how we feel, but it's also important in our prayer life that we speak the truth about God, about his character. My feelings are like this, but God is always the same. And Jonah's prayer reminds 
uh, himself of the steadfast love of the Lord who brings up our life from the pit. Jonah speaks and preaches gospel in his own prayer. Facing God in prayer means acknowledging that God is good and that God does love us and sees us and hears us and delivers us. Not always in ways or timelines that we prefer, but salvation is certain. And so this kind of prayer in the belly of the whale really is worship. It dethrones the false deities around us that we're trusting. And it rethrones God in our heart once again. And so he says, but I, with a song of thanksgiving in my heart, which leads then finally to facing God, empowers us to fulfill our baptismal and vocational vows. From inside the belly of the whale, Jonah says, what I have vowed, I will make good. Now, I really need you to follow me one for, for just another three minutes. Jonah rededicates his life to use good evangelical language. Or he renews his vows to God not out of a sense of moralistic will, like, well, I will fulfill my prophetic vows if it kills me. I will be a good Christian if it kills me. Yeah, if Brian preached today on the importance of memorizing Scripture, boy, I better do it. Because it's going to be good for my soul. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. Jonah is coming good on his commitment because all other options appeared absolutely stupid compared to the goodness and love of God. It was like, you know, Jesus saying to Peter, hey, all these guys are walking away from me. Like, what's going on? Uh, are you going to go too? And Peter says, no, I've checked the alternatives. Only you have the words of eternal life. I'm not going anywhere. And so many of us right now, let's be honest, it's hard being a Christian. We're struggling to fulfill our baptismal vows. Many of us feel like we need a second wind in this race that we're on towards the finish line. We're flagging and we're discouraged and some of us are tapping out or feeling like we're close to tapping out. And when we feel like this, there's a prayer that has been uttered by all the great saints in the Old Testament, the New Testament, in the, in the last 2,000 years, and we can pray this prayer anytime. We can just say, oh Lord, what you've called me to do and the way that you are calling me to live, I am really struggling with it. Therefore, show me your glory. Show me your character. That'll be enough. That'll turn the tide. Or as Paul prayed, that was Moses who prayed that. Paul prayed, I pray, Lord, for a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. He also prayed, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see the hope to which you have called us. Or we can pray, Jesus, I'm yours. I love you. I'm a baptized disciple. However, I'm having a really hard time right now following you. Therefore, here's what I ask. You have told us that you are the pearl of great price. 
You are the pearl of infinite beauty and value. But I want you to know, Jesus, that in my hand, I hold a few paltry pearls that mean a whole lot to me, and I am powerless to let these pearls go. And I know these pearls are keeping me from looking at you, but I can't let go. So unless you prove to me by opening my eyes to your glory and your splendor, I don't think I'm going to have the power to let these go. But I know that if I see you as you really are, those pearls will be gone in a flash and I will come running after the pearl of great price. And so today, I don't know where you're at. I know where I've been this week. Is your face turned towards the Lord by your ears being reopened to his words, saying, Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Is your face turned towards the Lord because recently you've told him exactly what's going on in your interior life? You've held nothing back. Is your face turned towards the Lord evidenced in you believing the gospel once again and realizing that as you get a glimpse of who God is, you will be empowered to fulfill your baptismal vocational vows? Let us all with unveiled faces turn our faces toward the one who loves us perfectly and is never, ever finished with any of us. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Amen.